Welcome again to Redeeming Grace Church. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to gather with you on this second week of Advent. Uh, Before we get into our sermon today and our text today, I just want to also uh, let you know, as we mentioned, Kim is back from uh, on a little break from serving overseas, but also one of our other missionaries that we've sent out from our church is back in town as well. David Curland has returned from Japan. And so I'd encourage you just to take some time to connect with him, hear about what God's been up to uh, in and through the ministry that he's had over there for the last couple of years, and uh, excited to see what God's going to continue to do in and through him over the next couple of years as well. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah this morning, and so I'm going to invite Mike and Odette Fox to read our sermon text for today. Good morning. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." A voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Go on up to, go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are are with young. Amen. Let's pray. God, we are grateful to be gathered here this morning for the opportunity to be here. Whether we are walking closely with you right now, whether we're just checking out who you are, trying to figure out what faith looks like. God, we're grateful that you are a God who has made known to us the path of life. God, we're grateful that in your presence there's fullness of joy and that your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so God, we pray that as we open your word this morning, we would experience all of those things today. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. You know, a few years ago, I remember seeing a book 
that was called the Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook. It has all kinds of interesting things in it, things like how to land a plane, how to win a sword fight, how to jump from a motorcycle into a moving car, how to survive when lost in the desert, and how to survive being buried alive. There's some good pieces of advice in there, but outside of a few circumstances, most of the chapters and the topics that they cover are about situations that most of us, I hope, will never find ourselves actually in. Last week, we began our Advent series, our first Sunday of Advent, and Advent means arrival or coming, and we during this time of year, set aside a, a, a month to really think about and reflect on the coming of Jesus into our world. This year, we're in the book of Isaiah. It's an Old Testament book that speaks of many things, but most significantly, it talks about the promise of a coming rescuer and redeemer, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And as we come to our sermon text today, out of Isaiah chapter 40, it could be a chapter in the worst case survival handbook. But it doesn't have neat tricks and skills to help you say, get out of the grip of a Yeti. No, the topic that it'll talk about is how do we survive being in exile? How do we survive being in exile? A lot has happened so far in the book of Isaiah. Much of what he has said has been a whole lot of bad news with a little bit of good news sprinkled in now and again. In fact, this happens in the chapter right before our text today in chapter 39 of Isaiah. We see Hezekiah is the king. He's the son of Ahaz. Ahaz was a really bad king. Mark mentioned that last week in his sermon. And for the most part, Hezekiah has been a good king. But we learn at the very end of chapter 39 that Hezekiah didn't finish well. He became prideful and arrogant. He disobeyed God. In fact, the last thing Isaiah says to Hezekiah is that God's people are going to be carried away into exile by Babylon due to their disobedience, to their disregard for God and his ways, and to the arrogance and pride of Hezekiah. And instead of being grieved by that, Hezekiah says, if you look at the end of chapter 39, verse eight, he says, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. See, Hezekiah didn't care so much about what was gonna happen to God's people because that exile was gonna happen later, not why he was king. He only cared about himself. Another leader, another king over God's people who fails them. And about 100 years after Isaiah writes this, what he told Hezekiah will actually come to pass. The Babylonian Empire will ransack God's people and place and carry most of them away to a foreign land, away from their home, and they'll be held in captivity. But that isn't the end of the story. And God, through Isaiah, wants his people to know that. But this section of Isaiah and this topic of how to survive exile isn't just for those that will be in Babylonian exile. It's for you and it's for me. Because the reality is we find ourselves in a place that is not as it should be. We experience the brokenness of the world all around us and at some level, all of us are either captive due to our sin or if we are followers of Christ, we are sojourners and exiles ourselves. This place isn't our home. And what we'll see is that the way to survive exile, it really has nothing to do with you or what you can do. It has everything to do with God and what he will do. 
See, the only way to survive exile is to have hope in the one who can actually free you from it and that he will actually do it. And what Isaiah will show us is that God is that delivering king. In the midst of our mess, God doesn't remain distant. No, he comes to free exiles, to free exiles like you and me. And so my hope today is that knowing that reality, that God comes to free us from exile, that you will leave here this morning, no matter what's going on in your life right now, no matter what's going on in our world right now, no matter how far or close you feel to God right now, that you will leave here with comfort, with hope, with peace for today and the days ahead, and that when you have that, you'll be compelled to tell others where they can find it too. So with that, let's dive into Isaiah chapter 40. May God bless the preaching of his word. As we come to our text today, we really come to a turning point in the book of Isaiah. Like I said, much of what has come before is mostly bad news for God's people, but beginning in chapter 40, the focus and tone of Isaiah's message shifts to sharing good news in the midst of the hard realities, in the midst of the brokenness of our world. Isaiah's writing this before the exile to Babylon happens, but the audience of chapter 40 is the people who will be in exile. So if you look on the screen, Isaiah's writing to this group of future exiles that will be in Babylon. And what we see first is exiles need comfort. Look at verses one and two of chapter 40. Isaiah writes, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God. That's what it means to be a prophet. He's speaking with the voice of the Lord. And I love that the way that God refers to his people in exile is he still calls them his people. This isn't a throwaway phrase. There's meaning packed into this. I mean, if you think about it, the reason these people are in exile is because they've rebelled against God. They've turned their back on God. And so God's disciplining them because of that. But even in the midst of their rebellion and God's righteous discipline for them, he doesn't cast them off. He doesn't disown them. They are his. So how will they be comforted? Comforted. He tells them that their warfare or their hardship has ended and their iniquity or their sin and rebellion has been pardoned. In fact, he says instead of receiving wrath, they will receive double grace. That's what it means, double for all their sins. Not double condemnation, but double pardoning for their sins. Isaiah writes this to a future people in exile, but he writes it, did you notice, in a definitive way. He says your warfare is ended. Your iniquity is pardoned. That isn't their current reality as they sit in Babylon and read this letter from Isaiah. It's not what they're experiencing in that moment, but Isaiah writes it in a way as if it will happen one day. He wants them to take comfort that in the midst of their distress and difficulty, God will do this. But how will this comfort be accomplished? We'll get to that in a moment because first I want us to make sure we see something, notice something important here. Isaiah is writing to this group of future exiles, but not only to them. He's writing to us and to everyone in between, his people both now and before. And so we see this picture here. He's writing to two groups here. And it appears as if what Isaiah is saying is happening all at the same time, but it's as if we're looking at a mountain range from a distance and we see multiple peaks of that mountain range. 
And if we look at it this way, it's kind of compressed. We can think, oh, those are probably pretty close together, each peak. But in between each of those peaks is a valley. There's space between each of them. The same thing's going on here. What Isaiah's writing appears to be all happening close together at the same time. But what he's doing in these 11 verses is is compressing thousands of years. And this is good news for us. Because you and I need comfort as well. At least I know I do. There are wars and rumors of wars going on right now. But it isn't just the physical battles that rage around us, it's the personal and spiritual battles that we all experience as well. We all wrestle with and are confronted with the reality of sin, our own sin and the sins of others and its effects in our world and our lives. We have difficulty in relationships with people. We experience sickness and sadness. We experience loneliness. We see Things aren't the way they should be. Hard things happening at work. Hard things happening in your family. Uncertainty about the future. All of those things we experience on a regular basis and it's hard. It's challenging. It's difficult. We, we need the God of all comfort to comfort, comfort us in our distress just like the people of God in Babylon needed as well. And while most of us have not literally been taken away from our homeland, If we are followers of Jesus, like I said earlier, the Bible calls us sojourners and exiles. In other words, we are far from home, strangers in a strange land, because we're no longer a part of the kingdom of this world. We find ourselves now being citizens of the kingdom of God. It's part of the reason we called the church that we planted 11 years ago Sojourn Church. We wanted to be reminded of the fact that this place isn't our home, and it's not where our hope is. Exiles, like you and I, need comfort. But how will this come to be? It will come to be because God comes in person. Look at verses three and four. Isaiah writes, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. What exactly is going on here? We see that another messenger declares another message to God's people in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God's people need relief from their distress. They need deliverance and rescue because they're in captivity and exile, both physically and spiritually. But who can actually do that? Who can help them? Who can free them? Like I mentioned earlier, all the recent kings who've been over God's people, all that have come before, haven't been so good. And so it seems as if, based off the track record, anyone who comes along will likely not be sufficient to fix the problem, to actually bring about the comfort that Isaiah spoke of. But now we see that someone is coming out of the wilderness into the city, and he's calling people to prepare his way, to make straight in the desert a highway, every valley lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, uneven ground becoming level. This is the language of a conquering king who's coming into town, either after getting victory over his enemies or coming into the city to conquer his enemies. It reminds me of watching the limousine ride of the president leaving the Capitol after the inauguration heading to the White House. That's about two and a half miles of distance. And if you've ever actually driven from the Capitol to the White House, it could take you 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, depending on traffic and traffic lights. But on Inauguration Day, that's not the case. 
No, the roads are shut down, traffic lights are driven through, a path has been cleared to make a way for him to get to, from point A to point B. But Isaiah here isn't talking just about some president or some king who will come and who will go, who may or may not be successful in leading his people. No, he's talking about God himself who's coming as king. Where it says Lord, that's a title we could give to someone who's a ruler, who is a king, but in your English Bible, it's in all capital letters. The reason for that is because it's the proper name of God, it's Yahweh in Hebrew. He's saying God himself is going to come. As God revealed himself to Moses in Exodus, he said, I am. He defines who he is and he says, that person, that God is the one who's going to come. See, Isaiah's declaring something really important. The people of God are in a bad spot, but now he shares this earth-shattering news. He says, God himself is coming, and he will arrive without fail. He will travel without difficulty. He will not be delayed by any obstacles. And when he arrives, verse five says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The glory of the Lord is about the revealing of the weight of who God is. This is about his awesome presence. He's coming. When Amy and I first started dating, we were long distance. This is a long time ago, and so we communicated via phone cards. If you ever remember those, we didn't have cell phones and instant messenger. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's how we talked with one another. We got a phone, call, phone card from Walmart or chatted on IM for a while. And it was great, we're thankful for technology. A bunch of years before that, you couldn't have done that. But man, it didn't, didn't quite do what we wanted when we were talking on the phone rather than actually being in person with one another. All of us have experienced that. We all went through COVID and had a whole lot of conversations and a whole lot of meetings on Zoom. It was great. Technology is great. We can talk to people all around the world or in the next city or whatever it is, and we can see their face on Zoom, but it's not the same as being in person. I'm grateful that we can do that once again with one another. It's different when we're actually in person. It's so much better than being long distance. What Isaiah says here is amazingly glorious news. We have to understand this. He's saying the God who spoke the universe into existence, all of it, the God who holds all of it together, the God who is eternal and outside the constraints of time, who is transcendent and high and lifted up, he doesn't remain distant. He comes in person. He comes in person. But when does he do that? How does he do that? brings us back to Advent. See, Isaiah wrote this prophecy in roughly 680 BC. The exile to Babylon took place about 100 years later in 586. Eventually, Israel will return from exile in 538 BC and begin to rebuild the destroyed city and destroyed temple. But no new and lasting king shows up. Certainly not one who looks to be God himself. The glory of the Lord is not revealed and all flesh doesn't see it. In fact, after the temple is rebuilt, the old men weep because this glory of this second temple isn't as good as the first. A few more prophets write, but then all goes quiet. Essentially 400 years pass without a word from the Lord. 
a divine silence settles over God's people. And eventually, God's people will be oppressed again, this time by the Roman Empire. So was Isaiah wrong? Did he misspeak or overstate what would happen? God's people were in a long period of waiting, longing, hoping he wasn't wrong. I mean, how could they keep hoping for so long that what he says will happen will actually come to happen? Well, he tells us in verse five, he says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. And then he says, verses six through eight, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And then he gives this illustration. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. But then he says this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Everyone else around you, every other situation that you're in will wither and fade. But this word from the Lord is trustworthy because he is trustworthy. And so the faithful remnant of God's people continue to wait with hope. They continue to wait for this promised rescuing king. And man, that must have been hard. Right? We struggle to wait. We live in a microwave culture. 30 seconds, let's move on. Right? We have such a hard time waiting for something to come to be. But God's people did year after year, decade after decade, hundreds after hundreds of years, waiting to see if what Isaiah said would actually happen. And then one day, a word came, not from the mouth of a prophet, but from the mouth of an angel. And not to the masses of God's people, but to an ordinary priest named Zechariah. And what did he say? He told Zechariah that his barren wife, Elizabeth, would have a baby, and this baby, who was to be named John, would be great before the Lord. And then Luke chapter one, verses 16 and 17, the angel says, and he, meaning John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And then he says this, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In other words, John will come and he will be a voice crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And preparing the way of the Lord won't be about literal roads and highways, it'll be about hearts and minds to receive this new king. And soon after this, a young woman is told that she will bear a son even though she's a virgin. But he won't just be any son, he will be the son of the most high God and he will be a king that sits on the throne of David and his name will be Jesus. Nine months later, this baby is born, not in a palace, not surrounded by great fanfare. He's born into humble circumstances with no one coming to see him except a group of shepherds. But then flip over to Luke chapter two, if you have your Bible. It's gonna be on the screen as well. Luke chapter two, verses 22 through 28. After Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph, her husband, go to the temple to give the normal sacrifices that need to happen after a baby is born. But then look at verses uh, 25 through 28. It says this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. What was he doing? He was waiting, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. 
and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, this promised rescuer. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the customs of the law, he took him up in his arms. Do you see what's happening here? Simeon is one of those people waiting The consolation of Israel is about the comfort of Israel. That's what the word consolation means. He's waiting for the comfort that Isaiah spoke of in verses one and two. He's waiting for this rescuing king, this Christ, this Messiah. And one day he comes into the temple like he's done day after day after day before. He comes into the place of God's presence, longing for the glory of the Lord to be revealed in that place. And he sees this child and he says, that's it. That's him. Finally. What does he say? Verses 29 through 32, he lifts up this child. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For why? My eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of who? Of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The glory of the Lord is about God becoming visible and Jesus is that John chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh. Jesus took on flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. But this rescuing king, he comes in an unexpected way. He doesn't come with a crowd into this city. No, he comes in humble, vulnerable circumstances. He comes into this world just like you and I do. He comes as a child. He left perfect glory and entered into the mess of this world, into the mess of our lives in the form of a servant. In some ways, Jesus himself was in exile as he left his heavenly home to a place that wasn't his home, eventually becoming a refugee as he fled to Egypt, as his family fled for fear of their lives. He came then not only to us, he came and can relate to us. Right after this moment with Simeon, a large chunk of time passes, some 30 years. And then look at Luke chapter three, verses four and six. The son of Zechariah, John, is on the scene. He's preaching in the wilderness and he says this, Luke writes this, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make make his path straight Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of our God. Luke is telling us this is it. This is what Isaiah was talking about. This is who he was talking about. All of it's fulfilled in John and in Jesus. God has come in person. But this wasn't the point of victory This is God himself in the person of Jesus dropping in behind enemy lines on a rescue mission to set captives free. Which leads to our third point, God comes to set exiles free. The people of God have been longing and waiting and now Isaiah tells them to go and tell the world to look for him. Look at verses, oh, we gotta flip back to Isaiah. Verses nine through 11, he says, go up on a high mountain of Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young 
The people of God have been longing and waiting and now Isaiah tells them, he tells them, look to him whose arm comes with might to crush his enemies, who comes to rule, to reward, to restore, to make things right, but who also comes with arms of compassion for those who are captive. He's like a shepherd who cares for and gathers his vulnerable sheep to himself and gently leads them in his ways to still waters, to green pastures. This is the fullness of who he is and the fullness of what he does, but once again, it doesn't happen in the way that we would expect. This baby grows up, but he doesn't come to sit on a throne anywhere. He lives in and around common people, teaching, healing, serving. One day he will come into the city like a king coming back from war and he'll be greeted with shouts of praise, but those shouts of praise don't last very long. A few days later, he'll end up being arrested, falsely accused, and sentenced to die. This promised rescuing king doesn't seem to be winning. He seems to be defeated as he's nailed to a Roman cross, crucified. Why? Isaiah, you said all this other stuff was going to happen. Why? Because it was the only way, only way to conquer our greatest enemy and overcome our biggest problem. You and I are in captivity to our sin. We've rebelled against God. We are condemned, righteous, in God's righteousness condemned and deserve his wrath and judgment for what we've done. There has to be a penalty paid for our sin, but Jesus, the very son of God, he's the one that comes to free us from it. He's able to deliver you from the consequences of your rebellion because he paid the price for your rebellion by becoming a substitute for you. He died the death we all deserve to die but he didn't remain dead. No, three days later, he rose again, definitively declaring victory over sin and death. And now when you and I place our trust in him, when we place all of our faith and our hope in him, believing that he is the only way for us to be forgiven of our sin, the only way for us to be set free from our captivity, we cross from death to life. Everything changes. Our iniquity is pardoned, just like Isaiah said it would be. And we receive not what we deserve, we receive grace upon grace, just like Isaiah said. And that's no matter who you are or what you've done. Just like Jeremy shared, we don't clean ourselves up first in order to receive this. No, God gives it to us in abundance of his grace in the midst of all of our mess and he makes us alive in Christ. Jesus alone is the one who's able to do this. Church, he didn't just come to us, he came for us. He came for you. It's the amazing news of amazing grace. And now Isaiah is not only telling them to look and see, but to go and tell others about it as well, that he comes with comfort and care for all those who are in desperately in need of it. Comfort, comfort is spoken over God's people for thousands of years. Promises of warfare and hardship ending has been made. But this hasn't fully happened yet, has it? Right? Sin still exists. The glory of the Lord has been revealed in the person of Jesus, but not everyone sees it or acknowledges it yet, do they? Was Isaiah being hyperbolic when he said this? No, see, not only is Isaiah speaking to Babylonian exiles, not only is he speaking to us and everyone in between about the first coming of Jesus, the first advent of Jesus, he's also speaking to us about the second coming of Jesus, the second advent of Jesus in these 11 verses. There's another mountain peak in view here. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples right before he heads to the cross that he'll be leaving them, 
but he gives this promise of hope. He says, John 14, two and three, he says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And listen to this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. One day, one day Jesus is gonna come again. And one day when he comes again, he will fully fulfill everything Isaiah spoke of here. When we, he comes again, we will see him. Everyone will see him. And everyone will recognize in his fullness of his glory, will bow the knee and say, Jesus is truly the Lord. When Jesus comes again, there'll be no more warfare, no more hardships, no more loneliness, no more difficulty, no more sadness in your life, no more shame, no more sin. When Jesus comes again, he will crush the head of Satan and sin and death fully and completely. When Jesus comes again, he will gather all those who are his to himself to be with him forever. When Jesus comes again, as Revelation 21 says, there'll be no need of sun or moon to shine on the new city for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. When Jesus comes again, if you've placed all of your hope and your faith in him, you won't get wrath, you'll get double grace. Just like Isaiah said, you'll get double grace because you get all of Jesus. But now we wait. We wait with longing, we wait with hope, we wait as sojourners and exiles far from home until we see him face to face when he'll finish what he began. So what do we do as we wait? How do we survive being in exile here and now? Man, the world offers you all kinds of solutions, mostly distractions, stuff, activities, entertainment to fill your time and your brain but none of those things really work. It's like eating empty carbs. Tastes good, but doesn't really do anything good for you. If we're gonna survive being in exile, we do what the people of God in exile have done for thousands of years. We do what Simeon did as he waited for the consolation of Israel. We come back to God. We come back to his word that stands forever again and again. In his word, we're reminded of God's character and nature, that he is faithful and he is good and he's gracious and he's merciful and he's patient. In his word, we're reminded of his promises and his plans, that all of them find their yes and amen in Jesus. In moments of doubt and wavering of faith, and all of us have those moments of doubt and waverings of faith, battling unbelief, wondering, God, what are you up to? What in the world are you doing right now? In those moments, his word reminds us that Jesus did come. And you know what? The tomb is empty. And so we can trust that when he says indeed that he is going to prepare a place for us in his father's house, that he will come again and he will bring you all the way home. In his word, we can see him and we can behold him. So let me encourage you to do that. If you need help engaging God's word, let somebody around you know that. We want to be a community where we help each other dive into the living, active word of God to be reminded of these things. Pick up a Bible reading plan before you head out today as you think about the start of the new year. So the people Isaiah initially wrote to, they didn't yet see the king, but they're called in faith to prepare the way of the Lord. You and I do not yet see Jesus face to face, but we also can prepare the way. As the first verse of Joy to the World says, which is actually a song about the second coming of Jesus, it says, let every heart prepare him room. 
Out of your heart is where your worship flows. Out of your heart is where your will comes from when the Bible talks about the heart. Everything flows out of that. So listen, God comes in person to set captives free. Are you captive to something right now? Is something else grabbing your attention? Are you chasing after lesser glories in life right now? If that's where you're at right now, receive this freedom through repentance and faith. Turn away from those lesser glories. Turn away from chasing after the things of this world and turn again to Christ in faith. Behold our God. Whether that's for the first time in your life this morning or for the thousandth time, look to Jesus. And when we do that, may it compel us to do what Isaiah says in verse nine, to go up on a high mountain and be heralds of good news to invite our neighbors and the nations to behold our God with us, to invite them to come and see Jesus. Brothers and sisters, our world is a broken place. Our lives are messy and at times really difficult. But that's why I'm so thankful for the Advent season. Not because it erases or numbs me to the difficulty of life for a month, like I can put that on pause, but because it reminds me in the midst of the difficulty of life that there's hope that there's hope, that light has come into the darkness. It reminds me that this world isn't as it should be, but also that this world isn't all that there ever will be. It reminds me that just as Jesus came once to take on all of my sin, he will come again to make everything sad, untrue in my life and in our world. It helps me to behold my God who came for me, who came for you, who came for us. How can we survive being in exile? We keep coming back to the promises of God in Isaiah, written some 2,700 years ago, and remember that because he came for us once, we can eagerly wait for him to come for us again and make all things new. Amen. One way that we can continue to be reminded and refreshed in the reality that Jesus came for us is by taking the Lord's Supper together. Jesus knew that we needed some signposts, that we needed some reminders along the way to help us keep moving forward, to help us keep running the race, to keep our eyes on him, to keep hoping. And so he gave us this meal to partake of often as a means of grace to help realign our hearts and realign our minds back to the reality that our God didn't remain distant, but he came for us laying down his life so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we can enjoy him forever. So we eat the bread, a picture of his body broken and given for us, and we drink the cup, a picture of his blood shed for us. For those of us that will enjoy this spiritually refreshing meal this morning, let me encourage you to take some time as we have the elements, as we have songs sung over you, just to, to think, to pray, to repent, to reflect. Let me encourage you to use this time to prepare the way of the Lord in your heart and in your life. In a moment, I'm gonna invite you forward after I pray, and there's stations all around, along the front here and in the back and up in the balcony. You can come forward whenever you're ready to receive the elements, whether that's coming and getting them and then returning to your seat to pray, to reflect, or, coming, or praying and reflecting and then coming forward. Just come whenever you're ready. And for those of you that aren't yet followers of Christ, we would just invite you, ask you not to come forward, but just use this time to commune with God. If God's confronting you with your need for Jesus this morning, just take time to confess that to him. Take Christ today. And let somebody around you know that so we can help you on your journey with Jesus. As you come forward, hear what Christ has done for you, spoken over you today. Let's pray. Oh God, faithful you are. 
and faithful you will ever be. God, help us to believe that. In the midst of all the difficulties and challenges of life, help us to believe that you are faithful. God, we thank you for the promise of Isaiah that we see fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus, we thank you that you came to us in person to set us free. So God, now as we wait for you to come again, help us to keep believing, keep trusting, keep hoping. Help us, God, to behold you and to invite others to do the same. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.